0: everyone welcome to keeping it real with Janine your guide to living an authentic healthy life I'm Janine and I think you will find today's conversation with Doug Knoll to be very inspiring I'm pretty sure that especially in these extremely polarized times everyone has had at least one interaction with a person who became heated and angry and you know maybe that person is you we are going to be talking about the principles and actions in Doug's book, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Doug Knoll speaks about and teaches people how to solve difficult, intractable, and highly emotional problems. He was a business and commercial trial lawyer for 22 years before turning to leadership development, problem solving, and peacemaking. He's a continued consultant with Mobius Executive Leadership and maintains a high-level mediation and arbitration practice. Now, Doug has a pretty long CV that I could rattle off, but I really want to dive right in and get to the topic here, because I know we're all going to learn a lot of techniques that can help us easily transform charged situations into peaceful ones. Hi, Doug. It's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Hi, Janine. It's great to be here in, smoky, in the smoky western part of uh, North America continent.
0: Yes, it is. Um, I've really been enjoying your book. I, I will uh, be authentic here and say I've only gotten halfway through so far, but I do intend to read all of it. Um, but even with half of the book, I've got this long list of questions and things that I highlighted. So um, <laughs> I, I really uh, encourage everyone to read your book. I think Even with my uh, background as a life coach and doing NLP and, you know, lots of other things, I found your work to be inspiring and different from, you know, anything else that I've learned. Thank you. Um, I'd really like to start with a little bit about you personally and how you became inspired to mediate and teach and follow this path.
1: Well, I grew up in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and went back to Dartmouth College and was an English literature major there, graduated from Dartmouth, came back to California. In those days, if you didn't, if you weren't going to med school, you went to law school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went to law school and graduated, um, ended up working for a judge for a year and then moved to central California and became an associate in a mid-sized bankruptcy litigation firm and tried big commercial cases, business cases, financial cases for the next 22 years. Mm-hmm. Along the way, I um, took up the martial arts and that led me into Tai Chi.
0: Oh, my favorite. It's a
1: very old, it's the, it's, the, it's the origin of all martial arts. All martial arts come from Tai Chi and Tai Chi is a martial art. And that led me to two paradoxes. The one is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second paradox is the more vulnerable you are. Did I say soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful? Mm -hmm. Didn't compute, but it finally did. And so one day in the, in the late 1990s, I was trying a case cross examining somebody and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? (laughs) And uh, so right after that trial, I had a vacation planned uh, a 10 day whitewater trip up in Idaho and with a bunch of friends spent 10 days on the main salmon. And thought about what I achieved as a trial lawyer over the past 22 years and just made the determination that this was not my calling. Mm -hmm. So when I came back to town, I lived up in the I still do live up in the foothills of the central Sierra Nevada. I was driving down to my office and I heard what turned out to be the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at a local university called Fresno Pacific University, which turns out to be the West Coast Mennonite University. Ah, cool. And uh, I enrolled and I was the first lawyer to go through the program and it, it completely changed my life. Um, and it completely changed everything that I thought I knew about human beings and conflict. And so my partners weren't too happy about me becoming a peacemaker because I was making a lot of money as a trial lawyer and. We parted ways in 2000, and I've never looked back. And then, then so for the next 10 years, I basically was a mediator, arbitrator, teacher, trainer, law professor, writer. And then in 2010, with my colleague, Laurel Coffer, we started the Prison of Peace Project, training lifers and murderers in maximum security prisons how to be peacemakers and mediators. And that's where I took the skills that I discovered in 2004 uh, to a whole new level. Because mm-hmm. we recognize that when we're teaching inmates in prisons to be peacemakers, whatever we teach them has to work the first time, every time, no failure. I mean, it's a zero failure situation mm-hmm. because of the violence. Yeah. So that's why we really acid tested. And the, and the book that Deescalate came out, not, I wasn't planning on writing it. It was my fourth book. But the inmates requested it. They wanted oh. it for their families. And so I ended up, that's why you see so many inmate stories in it, because they were asking for a book that they, that they, because they learned so much from our curriculum that they really wanted something to show their families. And so that's how the book came about. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was written, I wrote it in about six weeks in 2016 and Simon and Schuster through Beyond Words, one of their imprints, picked Mm -hmm. it up quickly and they published it in seven months. Wow. I mean, it was one of the fastest turnarounds they've ever experienced. So I just learned today it's in its second reprint.
0: Oh, wow. It's in four
1: languages. Uh, it's done pretty well. It's not a bestseller. Well, it was an Amazon bestseller for a while. But it, mm-hmm. it is, you know, I would say that it's a commercial, commercial success. You know, mm-hmm. you don't make a lot of money writing books. But mm-hmm. um, I'm really happy about it. And it's opened the doors to, for a lot of people. To learn some skills that are completely life transforming, Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. which
1: is really what I'm all about these days, is helping people transform their lives in really, really amazing ways.
0: Well, you know, this should be taught in school.
1: You're right. It should be.
0: Some of that, I was reading some of the inmates, what they had to say, and, you know, they were saying they had learned this before, earlier in their lives. They never would have ended up in jail.
1: That's right. I, and we heard that, have heard that thousands of times from inmates. Now, here's the thing that's really sad. I have taught this to high school teachers, to middle school teachers, to school administrators, to senior district administrators, and they are just not interested in it. You're kidding. Nope.
0: Sorry, but wow.
1: I am, I'm not, <laughs> I am not kidding. It's not, I, I mean, you just, you just got, hold on. Uh-huh. You just got to kind of shake your head. And what I've learned, uh, <laughs> um, what I've learned is that this stuff does not appeal to people until they're ready for it. And when they're ready for it, they just they just jump on it and go with it. And school administrators are so overwhelmed, especially now with COVID, with so many different competing and conflicting priorities, that the idea of layering in something like this into their curriculum and teaching their teachers. Is just it's too much for them, mm-hmm. and so they just blow it off. But you're right, and this is something that every parent should know. Every parent yeah. should learn these skills. Um, every teacher should learn these skills. Every human being should learn these skills, because they're they're so foundational.
0: Do you have a, like a video, or oh, yeah. maybe you could do a training? Have you done it?
1: I've got online training. I got about a whole bunch of YouTube videos out there. If you go to Doug Noel. YouTube channel. You'll find all my videos. Um, I've got online trainings. We can talk about that later where people okay. can do that. I do online group coaching on zoom. Okay. So yeah, I'm out there training and teaching and i te- I'm really right now interested in training trainers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can spread the word on this stuff. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's out there. It's just slow. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and part of the problem that I've also realized is that when we talk about emotions, cause I mean, what we're really, really talking about here is how to listen to emotions right? And we're not taught uh, about emotions, and as children, we're taught that emotions are bad; they're to be avoided, they're they're irrational, mm-hmm. and and so we so we never get any skills training on how to how to listen, how to be empathic, how to be compassionate, and these are all skills that have to be taught. Mm-hmm. These are not innate, yep. and we're not taught this stuff because our Western culture has such a strong bias against emotions. and, and the thing that's so crazy is that neuroscientists have now are telling us that we're 98% emotional and 2% rational. Oh, wow. And yet we spend 98% of our time trying to figure out how to be rational.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> 98% of, of the time we're emotional. Yeah. You know, Anything yeah. that's emotional is bad. It's irrational. Don't be a drama queen, you know, grow mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, and that creates a lot of abuse, huge amounts of abuse and trauma. That's mm-hmm. completely unnecessary. And we know from the ACEs study the Adverse Childhood Experiences study out of San Diego that, you know, children that experience unintentional emotional abuse suffer deep trauma that shortens their lives because they die of cancer, stress-related disease, addictive disorder, all that stuff. It all goes back to unintentional emotional abuse that every parent does to his or her children without knowing it.
0: Wow. So what, what have you come up with? There's three uh, but I the first thing that I got was that there are three um, oh, I'm having a senior moment. That's um, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know how that is. I'm turning uh, 70 in a week in a couple of weeks. Oh, so. well,
0: I, I've, I'm gonna be 71 in a month or two. Uh, so we're in the same boat. So you ignore the words that are being spoken. So if somebody is is being emotional, we'll just say emotional. it could be angry, right angry, but a lot of time thing. So you ignore the words being spoken. You you try to ascertain what the underlying emotion is, not listening to what the person is saying, but what they're feeling.
1: Yes. So let's back up a little bit. Okay, to sure. Put it in, into a bit of a broader context. So okay. so when when I teach this material, I talk about the four levels of reflective listening, and the first level is mirroring. We all know what that is. It's where you repeat what the person says word for word. Mm-hmm. Um, it has it has it's, it has a lot of utility in very in, in important situations. So, for example, I'm, a, I'm an instrument-rated pilot, and when I get a clearance, I have to read back the clearance word for word back to the air traffic controller because right. crushed aluminum at, at 200 miles an hour at 8,000 feet is not a pleasant experience. Right. So that's where mirroring for recipes, procedures, processes, anything like that, mirroring is, is really, really good. Not good for de-escalation or for listening to anything other than process. Mm-hmm. Then you got paraphrasing. We all know what that is. You're basically restating the words that somebody is speaking in your own words. Mm-hmm. Then the third level is core messaging. And the way I describe this is you can imagine we've all been through the experience of listening to somebody who just goes all over the place. Right. Yeah. You know, and we never know. <laughs> you know. You're looking at your watch saying, how long is this going to last? Uh-huh. Right. So the problem is with people like that is that they, they're trying, they, they have meaning that they're trying to convey, but they really don't know how to convey it. And so what we do in core messaging is we're beginning to ignore the words and probe for the deeper meaning of what they're trying to say. And then in about 15 to 20 words, we give them a core message. This is, this is what you're, this is what you're saying. So it's not a paraphrase. It's a de- it's deeper than a paraphrase. And then finally at the deepest level, is what we call ethic labeling, and that is labeling and reflecting emotions. And as you were just pointing out, three steps. The first is ignore the words. The second is to read the, emotional, the emotions, read the emotional data field, which we happen, happen to have an innate capacity for all humans can do this. And then the last step, which is the most counterintuitive and most difficult for people to get is to reflect the emotion with a simple use statement. So I would say, oh Janine, you're really angry you know, you're really frustrated that you couldn't get stuff set up the way you wanted to get set up and (laughs) you don't feel listened to and you feel unsupported and you're a little, you're a little embarrassed and you're sad because you were hoping for a a smoother morning. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's affect labeling and, and you affect label for about 45 seconds. It's 45 to 90 seconds uh, Mm -hmm. until you get a head nod, some kind of verbal agreement like exactly, or yeah. And then you're looking for the drop of the shoulders and a, and a sigh or an exhalation. These are all unconscious, uh, involuntary relaxation responses. And basically what they tell you is that the speaker's prefrontal cortex has come on back online. Mm-hmm. All, all this stuff is based on neuroscience. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's actually very counterintuitive to what we think we know about human nature and how we listen and how we perceive stuff. But it works really, really, really well, mm-hmm. even though it is counterintuitive.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, the example you were just giving, uh, I'll just let everyone know, is because I could not get call recorder on Skype going. <laughs> and so we had to switch over to Zoom. And then I was having trouble getting us to connect on Zoom. And it's, you know, it's... Um, it's Im- it
1: was frustrating.
0: Yeah. Frustrating is kind of embarrassing, you know, because
1: I... Frustrating and embarrassing. <laughs> You know, it's anxiety producing. Mm-hmm. You were anxious.
0: hmm hmm Right, yeah. but I didn't get angry. I, I-
1: No, you did not get angry.
0: No, I did not get angry.
1: But notice how you just, notice what happened there? As I was at app labeling, you said, right, yeah. And all of a sudden your voice quieted down and I could feel the relaxation response.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because I really liked your example, uh, and maybe you want to talk about this a little bit as a way to practice with commercials
1: sitting in a doctor's office around the time that I was writing the book, and I was thinking, what kind of exercises could I come up with where people that people could use to really convince themselves that they could do this mm-hmm. and there, there was some piped in radio station, and all of a sudden the uh, a spot came on, an advertising spot came on and I listened to, it was a 15 second spot and I counted the number of emotions in that spot and where the emotions went. And it was like one emotion a second.
0: Wow. It went
1: from despair and unhappiness to solution, to relief, to joy. I mean, (laughs) it was a great commercial because it was just punching everybody's emotional experiences in 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I started listening to more, I don't own a television set and I don't really listen to the radio much anymore, Mm -hmm. but I did pay attention for a while. And I was just amazed at how much there was underneath. And so if you really want to, if you really want to practice this, one thing you can do is if you're watching a movie or watching television, turn off the volume and just see if you can name the emotions without listening to the words, the tone of voice.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Same thing with the radio. Now on the radio, you're just listening to the voices and tone And you don't, you can't see what people are doing, but you'd be amazed at how much you can pick up just Mm -hmm. by listening. And it's, we have an innate ability to do this. Our brains are hardwired for this. So it just takes, it's a matter of just paying attention to what's going on.
0: Okay. Okay. So everyone can do this.
1: Everybody can do this.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, now I, I I don't know why I just thought of this and, and it may not even be relevant, but I've noticed like in, in movies, sometimes I'll shut off in my mind, the music that's playing, the underline that, that gives it that emotional punch. And I'll go without right. the music, this wouldn't be anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> you know? and that's why they put the music in. And so it's very interesting to, to listen to the music and say, all right, what emotion is being evoked right now? And one of the things that is a really good practice, just for developing a skill and also in general self-regulating your own emotions is to do mm-hmm. what we call self-affect labeling, where,
0: mm-hmm. where you
1: would say, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm pissed off, I'm sad, I'm embarrassed, I feel humiliated, I don't feel supported, I don't feel disrespected, I feel abandoned, I don't feel worthy, I'm unloved. And just by labeling your own emotional experience in the, in the moment, you can de-escalate yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can practice that in the movies. If you want to practice this stuff, you you go to watch a movie and just, what are the emotions that I feel as I go through this movie?
0: Mm -hmm. So, so this isn't just for an interaction with another person or a group. This, you can use this just for yourself too.
1: That's right. And it's extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I, when I teach people how to deal with verbal aggression, like, like what do you do when somebody all of a sudden starts shouting in your face and cursing and really mad. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And the first thing you've got to do is label your own emotions so you Ah. can remain calm. I'm feeling angry. I'm upset. I'm anxious. I'm a little scared. I don't know what this buffoon's going to do. I feel put upon. I feel a little embarrassed and shamed. You know, whatever it might be. And notice how long, how long did that take? Just a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. And they're still shouting and screaming at you. So as I'm affic labeling myself, I'm ignoring their words, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's helping me remain centered and calm. And then when they're done or when I start to label their emotions, then I, I, I come at it from a place of complete and perfect centeredness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and you, after you practice this for a while, and by a while, I mean, you know, weeks or months, not years. Okay you no longer emotions no longer upset you and it doesn't matter what is going on with people. They could be raging mad. They could be in deep grief. Um, It works with positive emotions too. It's fun to do it with kids when they're really happy and excited. It's fun to label their emotions and Mm -hmm. watch them react. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you get to a point where you recognize human nature for what it is emotional, not rational. And it makes your life a whole lot easier, whole lot easier.
0: I would think so. So it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, that what you're doing is getting your, you're depersonalizing it. You're not taking it personally and you're getting your ego out of the way.
1: Absolutely. Uh, In fact, as you engage in this practice, when you're doing what I call third-party ethic labeling, where where I'm reflecting your emotions, for example, I become egoless. Because the only way I can be present in the moment is by focusing on your emotional experience and reflecting back your emotional experience, that leaves no room for my ego. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it allows me to be compassionate and non-judgmental.
0: That sounds like a pretty important piece.
1: It's pretty important. And it happens automatically. You know, you can read t- teachers like Eckhart Tolle and people like that who mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. the presence of now. And he's made a lot of money selling that book and mm-hmm. some of his other <laughs> books. But the problem with these guys is they don't teach you how. Right. They teach you, I mean, that's my big criticism of Jesus, you know. I mean, mm. he told people what to do, but he didn't teach them how to do it.
0: Uh, <laughs> that and, is a problem.
1: And, and, and that is a big problem. It's been a big problem with spiritual teaching for thousands of years, is as these spiritual teachers get these wonderful insights and they have these practices, but they don't know how to teach it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they say, well, just follow me, do what I do. Well, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You've got to actually say step by step by step by step, here's how you do it.
0: hmm well, so. you seem to be quite uh, adept at that.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I'm all about the how. If I can't teach the how, I won't teach it.
0: Ah, uh, Excellent. So, okay. So what what is the difference between affect and feeling when we're talking about emotions?
1: Lots of controversy around this. I'm going to give you my working definitions. Okay. So feelings technically are what we feel, the physical sensations we feel in our body, what we will call somatics, somatic feelings. Okay. So we could be hot, cold, um, goosebumps, Mm panting breath, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever we feel in our bodies, that's a feeling. Mm -hmm. Affect is the physiological response that arises primarily in the brain, but secondarily in the rest of our body through the polyvagal system Mm -hmm. that we're responding to our environment. And it's basically, we either feel pleasant or we feel unpleasant. And this Binary feeling, of course, varies by intensity and duration, and all the combinations of affect these affective states that are influenced by different brain centers ultimately combine into what we call emotions. We're not born with emotions. This is something that is really radical. We are not born with emotions. We're born with affect and we learn to construct emotions at about the time we become verbal, because when we think of emotions, they're words and they symbolize different affective states, and they have certain uh, memories and conditions and feelings and environmental stimuli associated with them that we have to learn. And this gets into why this affect labeling process works so well, because most children are not taught explicitly how to build an emotional database. It It just happens by happenstance, and most of the time it's negative happenstance because children are emotionally invalidated. Right. So, so what happens is that people come through childhood with a, with a very limited emotional database. I mean, they may know a lot of words around emotions, but they're not linked into directly what the affect is what the, with the, with the various feelings are feelings and affect. Hmm. So that what happens is that when they get angry or upset and the, and the emotional centers of the brain, uh, become activated, they literally overwhelm the prefrontal cortex because there's a weak database um, that prefrontal cortex can't make sense of it all and just shuts down overload. And that's why that's when we see people getting into these highly escalated fights and arguments and their prefrontal cortex is completely shut down. Well, what happens when we epic label uh, somebody who's in that state is that we are literally lending them our prefrontal cortex for the 35 to 90 um. seconds it takes for them to get their prefrontal cortex back online. And by affect labeling, we're giving, like throwing a life uh, mm-hmm. ring out to mm-hmm. the pre- of this person's prefrontal cortex that they can grab a hold of and say, oh, yeah, I'm angry. Oh, yeah, I'm frustrated. Because if you ask people when they're, when they're really upset what they're feeling, they don't know what they're feeling because their prefrontal cortex is shut down. In fact, they get mad when you ask them. They get mm-hmm. even angry, mm-hmm.
0: which is
1: why you never ask questions in this process.
0: Oh, interesting. So that's
1: what's going on.
0: Now, would, would this explain, this is from a, a personal note here, like a kid who, when, when they get upset, when they get emotional, like, he just goes and curls up. Yeah. He, <laughs> he can't, um, I, I remember when he was younger at uh, the school calling me um, and, you know, saying, you've got to come. He's just curled up in the corner and, you know. He,
1: yeah, his not- body. He's gotten into an emotional overload situation, and his body is going into. His brain is really good at defending him against emotional overload, so he'll go into a catatonic state, mm-hmm. or curl up and just go into total withdrawal.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And and that's not healthy.
0: No, I know. Uh,
1: what happens is that children come out of that sort of thing. They one of two conditions happens. One, they either become emotionally unavailable, which mm-hmm. of course spells disaster for relationships in the future, mm-hmm. or they are they emotionally withdraw. So they feel emotions, but they have a wall up around them and they don't ever let anybody see their emotions. Mm -hmm. That's bad too. Mm -hmm. Both are very unhealthy, very common. Most people suffer from these conditions, which is why they are in unhappy marriages and partnerships and things like that. And unfortunately, they pass it on down to their kids because they haven't learned how to be different Mm because no one's ever taught them.
0: So does this process would this work with, with that kind of a situation?
1: Absolutely. So do you
0: wait then until uh, no, they come out? No.
1: No, you go right in. I mean, uh, yeah, it, and it really doesn't matter how old the child is. You can start doing this at about two, two years old, just when they're starting to become verbal. Two to three years old is when you really, that's the best time to start because the brain, emotional centers, the brain and emotional databases are all pretty much formed by four and a half or five years old. Mm-hmm. So, but let's suppose you've got a middle schooler who's...
0: Or how about you know, 17?
1: Okay, 17. That's, that, now you're dealing almost to an adulthood. Almost to mm-hmm. an, and, and so this works. Although with a 17-year-old, because they are, they are coming out of adolescence, they're hyper skeptical about any, everything and anything, mm-hmm. you've got to do this really subtly.
0: Got so it. with a
1: 17-year-old, if I were introducing this into a family situation, I would be very, very, I said, oh, John, you're really frustrated. And mm-hmm. leave it at that. Got it. Or, John, you're really, you, you know. You don't feel like anybody's listening to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's all I would say. Okay. 14-year-olds. I love working with 14-year-old boys. You know, head down, best you're going to get out of them is a grunt. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're really lucky, this works beautifully with them. Huh. And if you're willing to be patient and you're not going to get the normal reaction out of a 14-year-old, the, the head nod and the dropping of the shoulders and all that stuff. And so, so people ask me, well, how do you know you're getting through? And I said, if he's not walking away from you, he's eating this stuff up. Because most 14-year-old boys are frightened. They're scared. They are emotionally unavailable to themselves. They don't know what to think. They're they are they're not children, but they're not adults. They are, they're just basically scared beings.
0: Mm-hmm. And the best thing
1: you can do is provide emotional safety. And I've heard story after story of parents who've taken these approaches with their 14-year-olds. And within a month, the 14-year-old is coming up and asking for help with homework. The 14-year-old is not on the phone anymore. The 14-year-old is not in his room playing games. He's engaging with the family. Wow. That and so is, if you, Yeah, and you <laughs> want to, if people want to know, why do my kids, where are my kids on their, on their phones all the time? Why are they on their computers? It's because it's the only place that's emotionally safe for them.
0: Right, I know
1: that. And I just point to the parent and say, you have not created an emotionally safe environment for your child. <laughs> yeah, but I love them. Yeah, but you haven't created an emotionally safe environment for your child because you're not emotionally safe yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's not to say that you're not a good person. You just haven't been trained that's in exactly this.
1: right. And I, I, I was, did a show the other day and I had a guy, the guys in their, probably in their 40s, they've got teenagers, most of them, mm-hmm. and they were beating themselves up saying, oh my God, I've ruined my kids. And I said, don't beat yourself up over this. This is brand new knowledge. The, the, the initial Lieberman study was in 2007, 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you won't hear any psychologists or psychiatrists or uh, licensed clinical social workers. None of those people know this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not taught in any graduate schools, except in my classes. (laughs) It just hasn't hasn't gotten out there yet. And so don't beat yourself up about something that you didn't know about. But now that you know about it, you can start changing things. And it's not too late at 16 or 17 years old. You can still create emotional safety and teach your teenagers, how to be emotionally competent human beings. Mm -hmm. You got to be gentle with them and start slowly because they're going to think you're really weird when you start this and they're going to be scared. Remember, they're scared. They're not emotionally safe. So the moment you start getting inside their walls with ethic labeling, they're going to run like scared (laughs) rabbits. So you just got to be really careful about this. Mm -hmm. And the same thing in relationships. I mean, one of the things that I teach in my classes, I say do not take this home and start using it on your spouse. (laughs) big mistake. Not until you've really mastered it
0: Got because
1: it. you're introducing a level, of, a new level of intimacy into a relationship. That's not ready
0: for it. Got it. Okay. So how about a couple of examples of how a, a conversation might go, you know, a, a situation. So people well, can.
1: Sure. So let's, let's set up a, let's set up a scenario. I'll do all, I'll laugh when was the last time other than today <laughs> before a call. Give me a situation that, you, that you've experienced where you had some emotionality around it. And it doesn't have to be intense or a big deal.
0: Uh, well, most of my emotionality is around the boys.
1: Um. <laughs> okay. Oh, and that's where it should be. So tell, <laughs> tell me a story about one of your sons.
0: Uh, let's see. Um, well, uh, asking for help and getting an okay and a sure and... Um, I've learned to say, well, you know, when might that happen? I've been doing that, but it still doesn't happen. And so
1: you get really frustrated and yeah. a little annoyed when, when you think you have an agreement with your boys and you don't. Really and annoyed. <laughs> you get very annoyed. It kind of pisses you off and you yes. feel deeply disrespected. Yes. And, and you feel completely unsupported. Yep. And it makes you sad.
0: Yep. It does.
1: It makes you really sad. And it sometimes you want to run,
0: feels- actually, you know.
1: Yeah, like, and I don't need it, this
0: shit at seventy.
1: <laughs> exactly, and you, and you, and so you're feeling. Sometimes you're feeling a little abandoned and unloved, mm-hmm. and and you you just wonder, and and you just are just at at wits' end about what to do. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: All right, that's affect labeling. So how did that make you feel? Heard. Uh huh.
0: Um, yeah, like you you understand what exactly. what, what I'm going through. Um. I feel, I feel calmer. I definitely, I can tell, you know, my back is, uh, I, I call my, my. I have upper chronic back issues and I call it my canary because uh, <laughs> <you know, laughs> it's definitely linked to emotional stuff. So my back feels really relaxed right now.
1: Yeah. So that's that's an example of affect labeling and notice that it was not a conversation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Listening is not conversation. This is something that people have to learn. They apply the rules of conversation to the rules of listening and listening is not, it has a completely different set of rules. And so that's why notice how you would talk and I would interject and you would talk Did you feel like was to to an outsider listening to this might say, God, that guy knows really rude. What (laughs) do you experience?
0: No, it didn't feel that way at all.
1: And that's the way it is. And that's one of the biggest hurdles of learning this is you have to overcome you childhood programming that says don't interrupt that's being rude Mm -hmm. well it's true for conversation but it's not true for listening Mm -hmm. and in fact the more you as a general proposition everybody finds their own place but the what i try to do is whenever i sense an emotion i just jump it right in and name it and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like every two or three seconds oh wow And, and people people watch this and they'll say God, you kept interrupting him. And they'll, the person that I'm using as my guinea pig when I'm demonstrating this, they'll ask the person, well, did you feel like he was being rude and interrupting? And this response is the same one that you gave. I feel deeply hurt. I've never been so validated before in my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the audience is looking out there just in stunned shock because what I did violates everything that they think they know about listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why this is so counterintuitive.
0: Wow. This is really fascinating. Now, I've been brought up with all of my training as a nurse, and you know, life coach, and blah blah blah. Um, that you, uh, let's see how, because you you talk about this in the book, and I think this is important because I think a lot of us have been trained this way um, to reflect back how. Or wait, how does it go? That you you say how you're feeling, like if somebody's yeah. being. Talk mm-hmm. about
1: that. You, you statements rather than I statements. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's mm-hmm. just take, let's just take your last example. And I'm going to use the I statements that it was a, by the way, I statements came from a complete misunderstanding of the work of Carl Rogers in the 1950s. Ah, okay.
0: mm-hmm.
1: And, and with the human potential movement that grew out of that, his work in the 1960s, people started thinking that to be empathic, you use an I statement. So you mm-hmm. would say something like, so for example, if I were using an I statement with you, I'd say, oh, I hear you feeling frustrated or I, 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 I see that you're really frustrated and, and I understand that you're really angry and I see that you're really pissed off and you don't feel loved. I see a you statement and I, and I, and I, I, I see that you are, um, you're angry. Right. Okay. Doesn't work so well, does it?
0: Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, no, it's so, interesting. There's, it's almost.
1: So let me tell you why I statement, we don't use I statements. I statements came out of a misreading and a misinterpretation of the work of Carl Rogers in the 1950s. And so people started using I statements when they were reflecting. And even today, it drives me crazy. Even today, people are still saying, what I I think you're feeling is that you're angry. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Or or what I think you're feeling is you're frustrated.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it doesn't work. All it does is piss people off. And the reason is that the reason that people use I statements is because it soothes their own anxiety. If, you, if you're emotional and I'm not trained, I'm going to get anxious around your emotionality. And what I want to do is soothe my own anxiety. So I'm going to use an I statement to soothe my anxiety and I could really care less about you.
0: Well, you know, let me just say that, uh, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment, because when you did that with me, I really, it felt like a loss of connection. It, it was Exactly correct. It
1: was a total loss of connection. Yeah. Because whenever, whenever you're using an I statement, Who's the eye focusing on? Your ego's involved mm-hmm. as the listener. It's the listening is all about you, the listener, and what you're hearing, not about what the speaker is experiencing. And so that's why we use you statements. Now, we learned, and of course, we taught this in prison for a, dec- a decade, and we learned when I statements are appropriate. And I statements are appropriate when you are asserting your own emotions. So I'll say, you could say something to your son, you could say, well, John, when you fail to do what you say you're going to do, I feel deeply disrespected and annoyed and I'm pretty pissed off. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That is a legitimate use of an I statement because I am using an I statement to assert my own feelings, my own emotional experience. But if I were talking to John, I would say, John, you're really frustrated. You're really annoyed. You're kind of pissed off and you don't feel supported or listened to if that was the experience he was having Mm -hmm. because that's his experience. Right. And that's why we use you statements instead of I statements. And I get pushed back on this all the time. So if listeners are out there and, and they say, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. All I do, just do this experiment. Go find a friend and have him tell you a story with some emotionality. And the first time reflect with I, I statements like you might, like if you mm-hmm. were trained in active listening or nonviolent communication or any of those other bullshit things. <laughs> and, and, and they are. Uh, and then go back and do it again with you statement. <laughs> and ask your, ask your, your speaker, which one was most effective. Mm-hmm. You don't have to take the word of the gray dog. No, right. All you got to do is yeah. go and
0: test it. Right. Right.
1: And you'll figure it out. That's how I did it.
0: Interesting. So it seems like it's important to differentiate between whether you're speaking about really how you're, how this is making you feel or whether you're or whether you're addressing how the other person is feeling.
1: Exactly. And so what that is teaching you as you learn to do this is how to discern emotions. Are these my feelings and emotions or are these your feelings and emotions? Mm-hmm. So developing that discernment is really powerful in terms of developing emotional competency and emotional self-regulation. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't, I, 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 tell people, don't ever bother learning emotional intelligence. It's a waste <laughs> of time. You'll, you'll never master it. And you want to know why?
0: Yeah, I do, because I is, feel like is, it's important.
1: It is, not, it, it is not important, and I'll tell you okay. why it's not important. Emotional okay. intelligence, the word really started with the work of uh, Meyer and Salovey at University of New Hampshire and Yale back in the 1990s. And they were looking at different kinds of intelligences, social okay. intelligence and emotional intelligence, and they were trying to figure out ways to measure these different kinds of intelligences. Okay. And so when they started talking about emotional intelligence, it was as a measure like the Stanford-Binet IQ test. You can't learn a measurement. And today, even today, in all the academic literature, it, it's about measuring certain attributes and skill sets that people have. Well, you can't learn a measurement.
0: Mm, interesting. What you
1: can okay. learn are skills that allow you to score high on the measurement, on this, on the test or the assessment. Mm-hmm. So it's emotional competency that you have to learn in order to score high on emotional intelligence assessments and tests. And so, when, and that's why when you go out on the web and look for people who say claim they're teaching emotional intelligence, they're they're extremely ineffective in what they're doing because there's no way to teach emotional intelligence. It can't be done. You can describe it. But you can't teach it. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is teach the skills, like listening skills, for example, mm-hmm. that develop emotional competency that then allows you to score well on the emotional mm-hmm. intelligence measures.
0: Got it. So what you're learning are the underlying factors or techniques or parameters that lead to emotional Correct. Correct. You're learning the how. Mm-hmm.
1: You're learning the how. Mm-hmm. And it all starts with listening to emotions. That's where it all starts. Interesting. I mean, uh, just to tell you how powerful this is, we've probably trained or affected the lives of maybe 15 or 20,000 inmates, and um, we've, yes. had, we've wow. had about eight or 900 of, of our trainers and high-level students released, Not one reported recidivism. Zero reoffending.: <gasps> None.: Oh my God. Zero.: None. Wow. That's how powerful this stuff is. It changes lives in really dramatic ways.
0: So, is what I think I'm hearing you say is that <clears throat> the majority of, of people who are inmates, who have, are in prison, it's because they haven't been able to handle their emotions. That's
1: right. And the it's, stories we hear, the abuse we. When, <laughs> I'll just tell you one story. I mean, I have a lot of them. Okay. But, but when we first started, we were working with um, lifers and long termers, women in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, in California. Oh, and okay. there were there, the women, not all of them, but most of them said prison was the safest place they'd ever been in their lives. One mm-hmm. young woman art, we worked with for a while, um, she said that she was raped by her uncles at three. She, her mother God. addicted her to heroin at seven, started prostituting her at 12. She killed her first John at 13 and her second one at 15 and oh is in prison for serving multiple life sentences.
0: Wow.
1: That's, that's our criminal oh justice, that's God. our criminal justice system.
0: And really none of that is her fault. None of it is
1: her fault. I, I wow. remember teaching at another pr- a men's prison and teaching guys coming out of gangs. These are all again,
0: mm-hmm. had
1: violent, very violent pasts, And we were just talking about well, what was the emotional environment, environment of your home. And it was either there were no emotions or the only emotion in our home was anger.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really sad. It is. <sighs> it is. It's, tra- it's tragic. So speaking of the home, um, I'm getting the sense that uh, a lot of families are having trouble because of various belief systems that don't seem to coalesce or to, that are so very oh, right. different. And do you have any like tips or tricks to help people? Yeah. So, that, so let's, that let's still have a peaceful environment. Yeah.
1: So I actually i am doing a Facebook live. I tried to do it this morning. It didn't work. I had technical problems. I, I guess there must be something in the air today around technical
0: problems. I guess. But
1: on Thursday, this coming Thursday, the 17th, of September at 10 a.m. Pacific, I'm doing a Facebook live on how to stop COVID fights and arguments.
0: Now, when would another one be happening? Because this will be going up on the
1: weekend. Uh, I'll be doing, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be doing these kinds of Facebook lives and all the uh, topics all around this, this subject matter, probably starting out every, every two weeks. But then as I get into it all and uh, build an audience, I'll go every week. So let me just okay. talk about that for a second, uh, sure. especially since people won't know about this until after the fact, although you can obviously go into Facebook and find the replay on my page. Um, Great. The first thing to recognize is everybody is experiencing the same emotions. So let's say, you're, you, let's say you've got a partner and you're all about masks and, and, and social distancing and doing proper hygiene and doing everything the experts are saying, and your partner is all about screw that stuff. You know, I'm not wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to social distance. Let's, I'm going to go out and drink beer with my buddies or whatever. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of conflicts arising Mm -hmm. over this, right? So the first thing to recognize you, you're both experiencing the same emotion. You're both angry. You both feel disrespected. Neither one of you feel listened to. You're, you're both annoyed. Uh, You feel completely unsupported, unloved and alone. Both of you have exactly the same feelings. And the second thing to recognize is that there, are, there, may be some, there may be some significant value differences here that you've never explored before. And those value differences might be the difference between following the rules and being uh, nonconformist or anti-authoritarian, or it might be um, accepting science or rejecting science, or it might be um, being risk-averse versus being risk-tolerant. So the first thing you want to start exploring is, you know, how different are our values around these issues? Assuming that you know how to affect label, because that this will not work unless you know how to reflect emotions, you're going to ask four questions. The first question is that you're going to ask of your partner, your spouse, your friends, family, whoever it is. What are all the things in your life that brought you to the beliefs that you have today around COVID, around the COVID and the pandemic? And you want people to tell you a story and think about how they formed the beliefs that they have today. What caused them to either be health conscious or to be not to care, to be risk averse or risk, um, <coughs> risk tolerant. The second question you can, and as they tell their story, you affect label, oh, you, you were really frightened or you were really scared or you, you know, you're really angry or whatever happened in childhood and, uh, and through, through life, it's there, it's going to be an emotional story and you want to affect label all, all those stories. Second question, how do your beliefs around COVID support you today? How does it help you get through everyday life? What's it allow you to do? So you begin to understand how their belief structure actually helps them make decisions. Uh, And then the third question is going to be, how do you deal with people like me who disagree with you, who have a different set of values and a different set of beliefs around COVID and what we should do? And the first flippant response is always going to be, you know, I think you guys should all go to San Francisco and sing Kumbaya, you know, or I'll shoot you all. (laughs) I mean, Uh you get that kind of stuff. Um, but you, you're very patient with that. And so, so you're very frustrated with people who think differently than you are, but really how do you, how do you manage people who have different beliefs? And that is a very interesting conversation and you have to label that. And then the last question is, how do you think our society should be set up to deal with all of these different beliefs? How should we organize ourselves? So that uh, recognizing that people have radically different beliefs and that, Regardless of your belief, you know, there is some science out there that says that this is a very, very dangerous virus, kills people. I mean, 400,000 by the end of the year is what I've heard lately, over 200,000 now. And those are the kinds of questions you ask. So you're not, the mistake that people make is they say, wear a mask. No, I'm not going to wear a mask. So, or maybe it's, uh, you know, I'm going to go over to Bubba's and drink beer with 50 of my closest, and most intimate friends. If you challenge people on that, all they're going to do is bristle. Right. So there's no point in that. The, 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 the better approach is to ask them is to, in a calm moment when you've got time and nobody's pressured is to sit down and say, ask these questions. What led you to the beliefs that you have today? How do these beliefs help you? How do you deal with people who are different and think differently than you do? And how should our society organize itself around these kinds of problems? And what you will find when you ask those questions is you're never challenging their beliefs, but what you are finding out is what is underneath the beliefs. And you'll find that you're in agreement with their beliefs more often than not. And what's happening is, unfortunately, and this is a common, this is not new to our current political situation, is we have political leaders who, are, who, who believe that they can gain power through anger, divisiveness, and polarization by getting people really angry at each other. This has been going on for thousands of years, nothing new here. What we have to do is we have to be the antidote to that and say, yes, you believe in many different things than me. And let's sit down and talk about how we came to our beliefs, each of us. And, and what happens when you have that conversation, you find out that you have far more shared commonalities than you have differences, Mm -hmm. but it's the people who benefit from sharpening the differences and disowning commonalities that stand to gain power from it, which is why they do it. Right. And we have to resist that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel like with this whole COVID thing, the flames are deliberately being oh, they are by whoever. Yeah,
1: they are. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I mean, I would argue that it's calculated. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's calculated. So the question becomes, is wearing, yeah, is wearing a mask patriotic? Or is not wearing a mask patriotic? Think about that. And, and and it's such an interesting question because you could say, well, yes, it, I mean, with with freedom and democracy and liberty comes great responsibility, the responsibility not to harm other people. Mm-hmm. So it is pediatric to wear a mask. But then somebody else might say, well, except the government can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want and I'll take responsibility for my own health. And. Mm-hmm. I mean, the argument there, of course, is, well, what about other people? And I said, well, they've got to take care of themselves, too. They've got to do whatever they have to do to protect themselves. But it's not my duty to protect them. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's patriotic not to wear a mask. I'm standing up for liberty and democracy and freedom.
0: Well, and, you know, if you read, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but I did have a conversation while walking my dog the other day with someone, and she was telling me that, you know, if I because uh, i choose not to wear a mask but it from all of the s- studies that that i've read and doctors who aren't mainstream say that it doesn't work um but she was telling me that i disrespected her huh. by not doing that and i thought I, you know after i left i thought really is she trying to guilt trip me because if she wants to wear a mask i don't have a problem with that go ahead Um, You protect yourself if you feel that. So you you
1: respond to that by saying you feel really disrespected and you feel unsupported. Now
0: now I know. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So the beauty of of ethic labeling is that once you learn it, when people challenge you like that, you just come right back and ethic label them and it all goes away and they feel listened to and they're happy Mm -hmm. and they think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's pretty cool how it works.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm really excited to try all yeah. of this. <laughs> now, okay. Um, before we run out of time, uh, we had talked a, a little bit before we started. I said I wanted to get into accountable agreements mm-hmm. because I've been trying hard to create accountable agreements. It keeps backfiring on me, so I, I'm not not doing it quite right. I guess.
1: Oh, right. For an for an agreement to be accountable it has to be, the most important thing is it has to be very, very specific. And in most okay. cases, it's got to be written down just on a piece of paper. So everybody knows what's wow. being agreed to. So give me an example of a situation where you need an accountable agreement, maybe with one of your sons.
0: Yeah. Okay. Something simple. Um, would you wash the dishes to me? Okay. Sure okay.
1: So, <laughs> I get. sure. okay. So that won't work way too big. so the first thing you do is is uh john i need you are you would you be willing to wash the dishes tonight because i have to do this other stuff i have to get this recording posted on my website and and i i need the time to do that would you be willing to do that for me and he might say yes And said all right so let's see if we can flesh this out a little bit. At what time will you start washing the dishes? Well, right after dinner. So immediately after dinner, as soon as we've, we're have we done, you'll clear the table and you'll take the dishes into the kitchen and you'll start to wash them. Yeah, and when will the job be, how do we know the job will be complete? How can we tell that the dishes have been washed? Well, they've been washed and rinsed and either put in the dishwasher or they've been dried and put away and the kitchen has been cleaned up and you're willing to do that. Yes. I'm willing to do that. All right. So let's write this down. So at you one, number one, you, John are agreeable to washing the dishes tonight. Yes. And you'll start washing the dishes immediately after we get up on the table. Yes. You'll clear the table and take everything into the kitchen. Yes. And you will wash everything and either put them in the dishwasher or dry them and put them away. And then clean the whole kitchen up by wiping down the counters. Yes. And so there. notice how specific that is. And you're saying, what a pain in the ass that is. If you want an accountable agreement, Janine, this That's is what, what you I'm have thinking. to do. It is a pain <laughs> in the ass. The reason that you don't get accountable agreements is because you assume too much. Wow. And the more specific you can make the mm-hmm. agreement and get commitments to every part of it, the more likely it is that John's going to do the dishes. Now, I'm not done yet. Because now what you have to do is talk about, well, what are the things that you think are going to get in the way of you doing the dishes after dinner tonight? He said, well, I might get a call from my friend. Okay. And if you get a call from your friend, what are you going to do? And so you talk about that. You negotiate it.
0: Let's go with getting lost in the computer.
1: Okay. Okay. Or, well, I might, I might get distracted and get on the computer and just forget about things. All right. So how are we going to prevent that from happening and get the dishes washed? Mm -hmm. So what you, one of the things you've got to do in an of the counter agreement is come up with all the barriers. What's going to get in the way? And then talk about how we're going to make sure that doesn't get in the way. And then the last step, the third step, is to talk about, well, what do we do if you don't follow through and do the dishes? What should be the consequences? And so you, you put in some consequences. Well, if I, don't do, if I forget to do the dishes – then I'll, I'll. I promise that I'll do all the dishes every every week. Ne- next week, you come up with a con- have him come up with a consequence. What's the consequence of you not doing what you say you're going to do? Right. Okay. And there ought to be a penalty in there of some kind. Not horrendous, but something something that's got accountability to it. And, right. Right. and guess what? When you do these three things, you you get even in the most mundane tasks like doing the dishes, you get very specific you talk about the barriers and try to identify the barriers, all the things that can go wrong, and then you get him to agree to consequences, guess what's going to happen? He's going to do the dishes. That's done. (laughs) But if you just say, hey, will you do the dishes tonight? You say, oh, yeah. There's no commitment there. There is no commitment. Well, that's your fault. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) Frankly. You're not taking the time okay. to sit down with him and, and get him to agree to a specific set of tasks that, that you understand perfectly what has to be done. And he sort of has a vague idea what's supposed to be done. But you want to get rid of that vague idea and concretize it into specific steps. And in the beginning, it's a pain in the ass to do this on trivial, mundane things. But parents don't want to take the time to do this. They just assume that their kids know what they're talking about. And they just assume the kids are motivated to do it. Or if they're not motivated, then they're going to do it out of a sense of obligation. That's just not true. It's just not true. And yet we continue to, you know, pound our heads against the wall thinking things are going to change. And they're not.
0: So what happened to like, what happened to just doing things because it's the right thing to do? I, I,
1: (laughs) they have to learn that. If they don't, that's the job of the parent is to Definitely. teach that yeah. okay. over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how old your kids are. If they yeah. haven't learned that, then you haven't done your job. And you start doing this at three and four and five years old. When kids first start doing chores, you make, you make agreements with them. And you don't incentivize them. You say, oh, if you go, go up and clean your room, I'll pay you a dollar. No, don't incentivize them. Never incentivize. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
1: And that's how you do it. And that's what, that's what parenting is all about. Interesting. And now you're mm-hmm. saying, why did I ever have kids? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, these are step Right. I mean, yeah. but the, I mean, you get my point. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, most, if most people realized that you've got to engage in this kind of work for 18 to 20 years, they'd never do it. They just, they don't even think about what it takes to raise a child properly. Mm-hmm. And they wonder why their kids don't do stuff. Well, it's because you haven't taught them. I know. The, the kids won't model exactly your behaviors. What you see in them is what they see in you. That's a hard one for people to get. I do this tongue in cheek, of course, but I mean, yeah, you've got to post a $100,000 bond for every kid that you have. Oh, so the state can see so you forfeit the bond if this kid screws up and the state has to take over and educate the child. And they, you know, the bond, you know, so it costs money. I, I say that about divorce too. It's, you know, it costs you $10 to divorce and a hundred, I mean, $10 to get married and a hundred thousand to get divorced. It should be, the. it should be the other way around.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, tongue in
1: cheek. I mean, you know, I, I am not advocating. It.
0: The point being that you should, uh, you have to work at having a good marriage and if you're not willing to That's
1: right. Relationship any kind of relationship yeah. takes work. It's and relationship with children it takes a lot of work because they don't know anything. And it's your job to teach them to be the way that you want them to be without harming them, without emotionally invalidating them or abuse, unintentionally emotionally right. abusing them, which is what most parents do. Cuz they don't know any better.
0: Wow this is an (laughs) eye-opener. Yeah. So Doug, how can, is there, is there, well, is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel is important to cover?
1: No, it, this work is so, in some ways it's very Mm -hmm. simple, but in other ways it's extremely profound. And you know, it's my desire to, to expose as many people to these ideas as possible with the, with the knowledge that only 10 or 15% of the people are really going to take the time to learn mm-hmm. these skills. But over a period of time, perhaps not in my <laughs> lifetime, um, this will become the norm. And we'll have a much better, people will have a much, much better understanding that we are emotional beings, not rational beings. And we will start to spend time teaching people how to be empathic, teaching people how to have compassion, teaching people how to listen to emotions teaching people emotional competency and how to properly self-regulate mm-hmm. themselves. These skills are not taught mm-hmm. today. I
0: know.
1: And that's one of the reasons why we have the polarization and the arguments and the fights that we do is because people have never learned how to properly manage their own emotional conditions.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And these are skills that have to be learned like reading and writing.
0: So people can buy your book on Amazon or wherever. And I'll put a link um, on the webpage too if they want to make it easy and <laughs> just click on it. Um, but for people who uh, need to hear, uh, you know, maybe they're not, they don't learn that well reading. Maybe they need to see or hear. Uh right. what what do you have that?
1: So what I what I would do is I would direct people to com. Okay. forward slash, forward slash D dash escalate dash the T-H-E dash book. That's the page. De-escalate the book with dashes between D escalate the book. The book is, um, I sell the book at cost on that page. But if you're really interested in learning, there'll be offers behind the book that are deep discounts on my training. I mean, $3,000 training offered for less than $200. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm really, and, and uh, what I would my corporate rate is really high and my trying to get people to do this stuff is really low. <laughs> so they buy the book uh-huh. and, then, and then you can, if you want to, you can buy several different courses that I put together around this stuff. The basic uh, listening to emotions course, there's a workbook. That you can do self-study <laughs> um, and you can also join my, my uh, coaching groups, online coaching groups mm-hmm. for either six weeks or on a subscription basis on unlimited on, on basis really to learn how to practice with people online and get s- support from me and coaching from me on how to go out and do this. I've got two groups going right now and mm-hmm. I love doing it. I mean, it's so fun to watch people grow. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean the growth. I've got, I've got an afternoon group this afternoon, some young people. They're in their 20s and 30s. Amazing to watch these kids, Their kids to me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> watch these young adults grow. Uh-huh. And then I've got a group on Thursday nights that are all much older, more our age,
0: uh-huh.
1: and watching them grow. has, And I've been working with them for two years. Oh, wow.
0: Cool. And,
1: and, I, and they're, it's just amazing to watch. So I get really excited being able to help people and teach them and get them to grow uh-huh. in all these different ways. So, and then if people just want general information about my work and all the workshops I teach, and I, of course everything's online now, I do everything online, just go to Doug, go DougNoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com and just nose around the website. More, I'm putting more and more resources up there every day and, and people can, you know,
0: mm-hmm. get in
1: contact with me, learn more about my work, read my blogs, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and just get more ideas about how this stuff really works.
0: Yeah, and you know, um, when you were Listing out what the different things that you offer, what popped into my head was uh, a group of of parents, maybe yes. getting together on a regular base basis to practice and hone their skills. You know,
1: I, I actually have a whole. I've taken these courses and turned them into a whole program for parents, ah. and it's called the Parents Game Changer. And let me, I can get the. Um, if you wait just one moment. Sure.
0: I'll be putting Let's links see. on the podcast website for yeah. all these things that you're talking yeah,
1: I'll, about. I'll, too. Let me just pull up the, pull up the URL. This is a core, the parents game changer again, like all the other courses, starts off with some really s- simple low end tools in, in, get the book. And then, and then the high end, more high end coaching, I'm going to be changing this all around, but just to let people know that this stuff is out there. There it is. Um, so it's, you can write this down. Okay. HTTPS. Okay. Dino, this is D N O L L dot C C mm-hmm. forward slash parents dash game dash changer. How to calm your kids while sheltered in.
0: <laughs> All right. So i I'm gonna
1: be changing that. People can look at it. I'm gonna be changing it, changing things around on that in that funnel. But you're right. One of the things that I offer in that funnel is is to coach parents mm-hmm. on how to deal with their kids cool. at whatever age. Cool from 2 to 20 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay awesome and then there's then how do you deal with your elderly parents (laughs) Uh,
0: yeah yeah
1: a lot of same it's the same yeah it's the same skill Janine you're just listening to their emotions Mm -hmm. and that's all they want they just want to be listened to and not ignored
0: everybody wants to be heard
1: that's it that's it
0: Doug, I really, really appreciate who you are and the work that you're doing. I think it's really important, and um, and I really, I really appreciate your coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, hopefully, we'll have some uh, clean air soon. <laughs> I want to give my sincere thanks to you, Doug Knoll, for coming on the podcast and sharing this inspiring and, I think, very much needed information. And everyone, I highly recommend purchasing Doug's book and going on his website and seeing all that he has to offer. The podcast website is realjanine.com. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. Go to your favorite podcast provider to subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine. And if you are a fan of YouTube, there are video slideshows of all my conversations. Just search Keeping It Real with Janine. Do you know someone who would enjoy my conversation with Doug Knoll? I'm sure you do. Please, as always, share with those you care about. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.